0: life blooms throughout the myths and legend told by humanity across millennia from ancient iranian mythology to the tales swap between viking warriors huddled in chilly scandinavia the life-giving tree which often offers up knowledge too makes an appearance sometimes the lines blur between reality and the myths that underpin our lives in america the archetype of the tree of life grew into the real life liberty tree an elm in Boston that became a symbol of revolution against the British in the 1700s. But, as noted by historian Jared Farmer, the tree had its inverse, the tree of slavery, as trees morph from life-giving to life-taking, coming to symbolise the extrajudicial violence doled out by white men against the enslaved black population there. Across the pond in Lincolnshire, Britain, another significant tree still stands today, It's over 400 years old, an age estimated by its National Trust custodians. The tree is officially certified one of Britain's 50 great trees and stands in an orchard in the grounds of a once-grand house named Woolsthorpe Manor. Hi, I'm Moilothia MacLean, a journalist on the journey to discover the truth about Britain's slaving history and my own past at the same time. This is Human Resources. Wallsthorpe Manor earned its place in history thanks to a young man raised under its roof. When Sir Isaac Newton, one of Britain's most famous scientists, was born there in January 1643, the manor was a farmstead. He returned there as a young man in 1666 to escape the Black Plague that was ravaging the south of England. And it was here, at Wallsthorpe, that Newton watched an apple fall from the tree in the manor's orchard and began to wonder what forces made it fall towards the ground as opposed to anything else. It was this unassuming tree in Lincolnshire that began Newton's journey towards realizing his world-changing theory of gravity. And it's this tree that will take me on a journey to understand science's relationship with slavery. To prove his theory of gravity, Isaac Newton needed measurements, so he turned to a resource off minimised in discussion of how Britain's scientific advancements surged forward during the Age of Enlightenment, the ever-increasing number of British and European slave colonies.
1: I think the most important thing to understand is that Newton pursued his career in a society which was economically crucially connected with the slave trade.
0: This is Cambridge University professor Simon Schaffer, a specialist in the history and philosophy of science. He knows a lot about Isaac Newton.
1: The number of connections between Newton's work and the slave trade is significant and large. We need to decide how direct they are. And the reason I emphasise that is because this was a world in which it wasn't just that there was chattel slavery. It wasn't just that this was a society in which, as it happened, large numbers of people were owned and forced to work. It was a slave society. It was a society in which that was naturalized. It was taken for granted. It was, in all sorts of ways, unremarked by property-owning white society. So when we go and look for evidence, very often... What we're looking for is what people took for granted. And that has an effect on the kind of evidence we're likely to find. There's a big difference between the situation in England in Newton's lifetime. He was born in 1642. He died in 1727. And the situation, let's say, at the end of the 1700s and the opening decades of the 19th century, when there was a huge debate about the morality and conduct of the trade. That was not what was happening in Newton's lifetime.
0: So during Newton's life, questioning the treatment of slaves and the transatlantic slave trade as a whole wasn't done. It's fair to say, according to Simon, it was perfectly normal, which is quite hard to comprehend as someone who's only heard stories of what was happening.
1: One of the most important things about Isaac Newton's work was that it was global. He relied completely for a lot of the work he did in natural philosophy and mechanics and astronomy on information and data that was gathered around the globe. And therefore, perhaps the single most important relation between Newton's work and the slave trade was the fact that the slave trade was so important as a system through which goods, commodities, and information gathered worldwide were accumulated in England. So let me give an example. Newton's masterpiece was a book called The Principia Mathematica, a very technical work written in Latin, which appeared in London in 1687. Newton's book was an attempt to describe using the laws of mechanics the ways in which bodies move on Earth and in the heavens. In order to show that his model of universal gravitation worked, he added a huge amount of data in the third volume, which he called the system of the world. And the sections in the system of the world that perhaps mattered the most were his descriptions of how comets move in orbits around the Sun, how the tides are produced in the world's oceans, and how, by looking at the way in which pendulum clocks behave, we can work out, he claimed, the exact shape of the Earth. In order to do those three things, comets, tides, pendulum clocks, he needed numbers. And the numbers he needed came from European travelling observers from all over the world. And one of the key areas that he relied on was the eastern coast of North America and the plantations of the slave trade.
0: Do we know anything more about the specific colonies he was getting his data from? I know Martinique was mentioned.
1: Martinique is a good example. Martinique was a French colony at this point. It was hugely based on the slave trade and the industry to grow and export sugar. The French at this point had the third largest slave trade in the world after Portugal and Britain. Martinique on its own, more than 217,000 people of African descent, were shipped as slaves to the island. So it was a huge, wealthy slave colony. The French imposed, in 1685, what they called the Black Code, which was a system of laws to regulate the slave trade, which imposed the system whereby slaves were enslaved for life, and if you were born a slave, you stayed a slave. It also regulated who could live in Martinique and who could work there. So it was a ferocious system of surveillance, labor extraction, profit, and control. In 1703, a French priest called Louis Feuillet, who was in his 40s at this point, went on French government orders to Martinique from France to survey the island and the coasts between Martinique and the mainland of South America, including what is now Venezuela. Along the way, Foyer, who'd been trained in measurement and astronomy by other travelers who'd also done surveys in the West Indies, so it's not just an individual, we're talking about a whole collective project that backed up the trade and colonial system with government-sponsored information gathering. Feuillet gathered data on the position of planets, on how his clocks worked, on the heights of tides, and a whole slew of information that was then published back in France and translated and published in Britain as well. It's that data that Newton incorporated into the Principia, in order to show that pendulum clocks have to be shortened the nearer the equator they are, because the force of gravity is weaker nearer the equator. So if you shorten the clock, it goes faster. What that showed was that Newton was right, he thought, about the shape of the Earth.
0: Isaac Newton's law of universal gravitation was a breakthrough in science that is still used today, but you rarely hear the data gathered to help prove his theory relied heavily on slave colonies. Speaking with Simon, I wanted to know whether all scientists working during that period who relied on collection, were they essentially all invested in the slave trade in some form because it was that normalised?
1: I think that's right. It's very, very difficult to find any natural philosopher, naturalist, astronomer, or mathematician who remarks on the rationale for this kind of trade. On the contrary, in fact, we have strong evidence for the sense that the capacity of the Europe-based men of science to gather information was well understood as relying on the plantation system. In 1667, so when Newton was a very young man in his 20s, the Royal Society of London, which was the main English organization for the pursuit and collection of natural knowledge, published a book called The History of the Royal Society by a man called Thomas Spratt. And Spratt points out that the Royal Society has a twin, And the twin was the Royal Africa Company. And the Royal Africa Company was the principal state monopoly organisation for the slave trade.
0: What is it that we, in the 21st century, need to understand about the prevailing philosophy of society at that time? There are huge parallels between the need to conquer and colonise and enslave, and what we're seeing with the scientists, which is a need to go back and collect and categorise and bring home and accumulate knowledge they seem to be from the same sort of mindset.
1: I think what we need to understand perhaps most of all is the apparently self-evident quality of the relation between accumulation and domination. It works both ways. In order to understand the globe as such, these Europeans began to develop the argument that it was necessary that the world be dominated. In other words, in order to make reliable measurements, collect goods that you can trust, hear stories that are believable, it was argued that you need to be in control of the settings from which those goods and stories and numbers come. The ability of Europeans with their arms and vessels and long-range trading networks to dominate other places was, they understood this, a condition of the reliability and use of the data and objects that they collected and in many cases sold. And it worked the other way around. And I want to emphasize this. These were enterprises which massively aided the ability to act at a distance. There's a very good example of this in which Newton was directly involved. In 1714, the British Parliament passed an act called the Longitude Act. The Longitude Act offered generous rewards to anybody who could come up with a method that allowed ships to determine their longitude at sea. Really hard measurement to make. Without that measurement, Ships' journeys would be unreliable, they would be too long, they would be too expensive, and so on. Pendulum clocks allow you to determine how far east or west you are, but they don't work on a ship, because ships move in a really annoying kind of way. So, it was necessary to work out a method, either using better clocks or using astronomy, to see if you could determine how far east or west you were at sea. Newton was put in charge of a committee to check schemes like that. In the act, the way it was supposed that anybody would show that their method worked was if it worked on a journey from England to the West Indies. So the single most important journey that the English navy could think of was, to put it brutally, sailing from London to Barbados.
0: It's interesting that the British government pretty much incentivized the voyages and made them a necessity for scientific data gathering. So scientific bodies and those involved with the scientists, it would be in their best interest not to question the morality of the slave trade because it could be justified as a greater good in terms of scientific knowledge. Now, I want to know more about Arthur Storer.
1: Newton shared a house with Arthur Storer when they were at school. The kinsman of Storer was the mathematics teacher, and Arthur's uncle, a man called Humphrey Babington, was deputy head of Trinity College Cambridge, which is the Cambridge college that Newton went to. And perhaps the most interesting connection, there's strong evidence that Newton, who never married, fell in love with Arthur's sister, who was called Catherine. One of Storer's sisters married a medic called James Truman, and they emigrated to the colony of Maryland. They set up a plantation on Chesapeake Bay, which was one of the centers of the plantation system in the Americas. This was a slave plantation. Arthur Storer left England and went out to Maryland and lived on the plantation. He was probably a merchant. He worked on the slave plantation. It would have mainly grown tobacco. Tobacco was not only the single most important economic product of the slave system in Maryland, it was also the local currency. So when Arthur Storer died in 1686, he left 17,000 pounds of tobacco in his will. That's a lot of tobacco. When he wasn't doing that sort of work, he was observing the heavens. In particular, the position of the stars and comets. The most important comet in Newton's lifetime was the comet of 1680. This was the comet that convinced him that objects in the heaven pull on each other with the force of gravity. And key data for that comet reached Newton from his old friend Arthur in Maryland. In the paragraph in the Principia, where Newton rather excitedly describes the observations of this comet, he mentions Arthur Storer, the plantation on the Chesapeake, So it's a very personal, direct relation between Newton and the plantation system. And it's a very good example of the way in which the Newtonian information system is the plantation system.
0: Contextualising Isaac Newton's discoveries and the systems he used to achieve them is like having a light bulb go off above my head. The way Newton mined the vast colonial network for scientific data is the same way I take finding sources for stories via social media for granted. It's just part of the fabric of society as I know it. Questioning these social assumptions or ingrained understandings of how we operate in the world takes real effort or a push. And it's fascinating to see the way science, a discipline regarded as rational and objective, is bound up with this very emotional, traumatic past of slavery. Is this why it's not wider knowledge?
1: Well, I think there are two reasons. One, in a way we've already discussed, which is the problem of self-evidence in history. I think it's really challenging for us as politically active citizens to go back and understand as we write the genealogy, the lineage, the descent of our own cultures to bring up for our discussion and observation what used to be taken for granted. A great deal of our struggle now is not just to challenge what is explicitly said, but to bring up assumptions and materials that have just been taken for granted. Then there's a specific biographical point, which is we've inherited a very important image of the man of science. The image we've inherited is first of all as the name implies that it's a man, that he's white, that he has a particular career, and that the price of truth is solitude. Our image of the lone individual who is isolated, cloistered and sequestered, who works in a place with high walls, we use the phrase ivory tower quite often here, is very important in our culture because we associate being politically involved and being socially networked with sources of bias and prejudice. And we tell ourselves that the more engaged you are, the more prejudiced you are. And the more isolated and solitary you are, the more objective you are. And we construct for ourselves institutions which are supposed to be cut off from those linkages so when in the early 1800s william wordsworth writes his great autobiographical poem the prelude he was at the college next to trinity college next to the one where newton had been a student wordsworth describes the statue of newton and describes newton's statue as the The marble marble
0: index index of a mind forever voyaging through strange seas of thought, alone. Alone.
1: So Wordsworth's image of Newton, which I think has been very important, is he traveled, he was a voyager, strange seas of thought, but those voyages were solitary, they were alone. He depended on nobody, he learnt from nobody, he communicated with nobody. And what I'm trying to show here is that's an image and it's completely wrong.
0: Some historians fall prey to this typical view of seeing science as a rational, removed discipline. But Simon Schaffer is not one of them, and as demonstrated, this view of the solitary, brilliant mind that did not rely on anyone just isn't the case at all and was not Isaac Newton's reality.
1: I think science is rational. This is what reason looks like. And what we need to work out is what were the reasons for this work. This was rational action. Does that make it moral? No. Ethically acceptable? Perhaps not. Perhaps so. We have to decide. But the key issue is whether we see the connections between what people do and the way they live as by and large a source of error and bias or as key indispensable resources for what they set out to do. My approach has been to try and show the way in which the sciences work because they are integrated into social, practical, and personal networks. Not despite the fact that they are integrated. This is not a denunciation. It's to show what has enabled the most reliable form of knowledge that we've got.
0: So the pursuit of scientific knowledge was inextricably linked with the story of slavery. In fact, it was made possible by it. I've enlisted the help of Professor Kate Murphy, author of Collecting Slave Traders, Natural History and the 18th Century British Slave Trade, to tell me more about the data and specimens that were gathered, and whether there were any other scientists at this time that stand out in the history of slavery. Henry Smithman, who is not at the same level at all of Newton. He's called the father of termitology.
2: He works on termites and his early paper on termites is still cited sometimes today. And he's the one who spends four years collecting in West Africa, traveling around on the local networks of the slave trade. So small boats, getting rides with slave traders. He gives an electric machine to his slave trading landlord as part of his rent. But he does this really detailed study of termites. And he's able to do so because he's there so long and because he has these enslaved Africans who help him pull down termite hill after termite hill so that he's able to really understand what's in them. And he also cites local knowledge, sort of African knowledge about how many queens are there and how do those sort of the termites behave and how to understand that behavior. So that work on termites is completely linked to his presence and to the existence of the slave trade. Somebody like Stephen Hales, who's primarily known for being the first person who calculated blood pressure. He's interested in kind of how fluids move, how water moves in a plant. He also tries to engineer a ventilator to increase the circulation of air on a slave ship. He's he's this British scientist in the generation after Newton who's known for sort of fluids and liquids and and kind of his interest in that. But he's also trying to engineer a healthier slave ship, which is this kind of strange connection um, to a fairly well-known scientist. You have people who are slave ship surgeons, who are on these slave ships, who are secretly gathering plants or sloths or beetles and bringing them back. It's what at the time would be called natural history, what we today would call biology, right? So it's a lot of botany to some degree, also sort of what we call today zoology. The problem with zoology is it's harder to get animals back to Britain alive, or even if you stuff them, not eaten by bugs. Um, whereas seeds or pressed plants, those things are so stable that the Natural History Museum, you know still has some that were collected on slave ships that are still in good shape because they're just they're incredibly well preserved once you press a plant or put a seed in a box. University of Glasgow has this really amazing beetle called the Goliath Beetle, which is the largest beetle known in the 18th century. It's unclear exactly what kind of merchant ship originally collected it, but it was probably a slave ship. And it definitely encouraged a collector to go to West Africa and spend four years trying to collect specimens, in part inspired by this huge beetle.
0: Just hearing Kate talk about all the different ways scientists were able to gather data and how their reliance on plantation networks touched so many different and sometimes obscure areas leaves me wondering how we should view scientists now, or more specifically, their continued modern day use of those specimens and data understanding
2: and acknowledgments are really important first step and one that we haven't really fully done is to understand just how deep these connections are and how insidious and, and wide-reaching they are. Then I think the next step is to think about, well, what do we do with that information, that data? I don't think that the, the productive response is to say, we're just going to throw it all out, right? We're not going to stop using Newton. That's not even really possible, right? We can't stop think using Newtonian theories of physics, but I think there are models in other contexts that we might think about. So for example, the issue of what to do with data that's morally compromised has come up a lot when people looked at the kind of medical research of Nazis. The Nazis engaged in horrific medical experimentation on people. They also had a number of scientific data that are linked to Nazi scientists. And there's some aspects of it that are understood and well-established now that are simply not used. And then there's other aspects where there's an acknowledgement made when that data is used so that that history continues to be honored and acknowledged. In the same way, you know, in a more modern example, there was recent interest in Henrietta Lacks, right? That the kind of the HeLa cells and the way that the exploitation of this black body in that case, right? This woman in the 1950s and then her family going forward didn't know. And yet that cell line has been hugely influential and fundamental to a lot of cell biology. And so increasingly that's acknowledged that history and that contribution, even if it was an unwilling contribution on her part is part of that story and part of the medical breakthroughs that have happened. And so I think we want to think about how can we use those as as models to think through the ways in which these breakthroughs, whether they're Newtonian physics or whether it's botanical understandings, or whether it's a really cool beetle that's sitting on a shelf in Glasgow today, that those have these really deep histories, and we we need to honour that by at least acknowledging it.
0: Following the tangled trail of science and British slavery has taken me from Lincolnshire to Martinique to Virginia to Glasgow. It's also provided a dissection of the beating heart of Britain's scientific achievements, ...attained partly through the resources, networks and literal bodies provided by slavery. Science might be objective, but it certainly isn't neutral. The delicate collections housed by Kew Gardens... ...the theories born of tidal data from slave colonies... ...the story of scientific progression is one of colonial oppression. It puts me in mind of the narratives surrounding the National Trust... ...and the legacies bound up in the historic manor houses that litter the English countryside... So with that in mind, maybe you can guess where I'm heading next. Human Resources was written by me, Moya Lothi MacLean, produced by Renee Richardson. Our researchers are Arisa Lumba and Dr Alison Bennett. Sound design and original music by Ben Williams, Jay hope on the violin. And with thanks to Sandra Dobrzemski for additional support and Tony Phillips. This is a Broccoli production.